say everything's bigger in Texas, including climate change. That's why Houston is leading the energy transition. Here in H-Town, the fourth largest city in the United States, entrepreneurs from across Texas and around the world are gathering to work with titans of industry to build the technology that will reduce emissions and power a low carbon future. We sit down with those change makers and wildcatters who are solving the toughest energy challenges. With trillions of dollars on the line, we dig into how Houston will bring technology to market on a massive scale. Join us as we talk with the leaders of the energy capital of the world as they show us how the energy transition gets done. I'm Lara Cottingham, and this is the Energy Technology Podcast. And I'm Jason Etier. Let's jump in. Hello. I'm excited to have with us today Ethan Novak, a multiple award-winning chemist and the sole inventor of 25 granted utility patents with over 150 patent filings in the materials science, and sustainable energy industries. Ethan has invented nine new platform technologies in heat transfer, electricity storage, gas separation, refrigeration cycles, calcium oxide and cement production, tidal power, power generation, and CO2 conversion. He is also the inventor, founder, and CEO of SolveCore Technologies. Um, Super excited to have you today. That was the longest introduction I think we've done so far that has so many things to unpack. Um, We're not going to talk about, sadly, all 150 patent filings and 25 granted utility patents. Um, So tell us a little bit about yourself and tell us about SolveCore. Thank you, Laura. And thank you, Jason. I'm very happy to be here. And and, uh, this is my first time in the canon. So I'm (laughs) actually... uh, it's very impressive, and it's great to see uh, so many people in the ecosystem here. Uh, it's it definitely feels pre-pandemic. You know, there's a lot. I mean, to park here, you had to really go out. I mean, there's there's a lot of cars, a lot of people, a lot of activity. So exciting to see the Houston ecosystem uh, being active even outside of just the clean energy in- mm-hmm. industry. Uh, in terms of, uh, I, I'm Ethan Novak. I'm the uh, I'm uh, the founder of Softcore, also the inventor of Softcore. I and uh, I moved to Houston about a year ago from Princeton, New Jersey. And uh, in terms of SolveCore and the company itself and, and our technology, I would start with saying, how, how does the world change? Um, or should we say, how do people change? Or what will people need as the world gets warmer? Mm-hmm. They will need more cooling, mm-hmm. right? And, and ultimately, how is cooling done today? And cooling is done today by mostly using water. So water, especially in large-scale cooling processes, water is ultimately the heat transfer medium that's used to cool. And so if you look at how a cooling process works today, and and in terms of cooling processes, the applications are really everything that people see or take for granted that's very important in society. So things like data centers, you know, every person knows that the internet is grown dramatically over the last, especially the last 10 years. Uh, and, and as a result, hyperscale data centers and the data centers that kind of back the internet and the cloud are ultimately growing exponentially as well. And they've, they've grown, there's, there's one built you know, every day pretty much. And these hyperscale data centers, along with uh, every commercial building, every, uh, pretty much every industrial process, Every many of the large residential high rises or every skyscraper you see in uh, Houston or New York or any of the major cities, uh, they're based around water as the heat transfer medium for cooling. And the, the basic principle of using water as a cooling medium involves heating up water in the process of cooling, let's say, the air. And then ultimately, when the water is warmed up, cooling down that water with something, whether that's a chiller mm-hmm. or the outdoor air or evaporation of water, that's ultimately the basic principle of it. And so all of the world's cooling infrastructure, pretty much all the world's cooling infrastructure, is built around the properties of water. Mm-hmm. And that's because water ultimately is, as of before softcore, the best heat transfer liquid, the best medium, ultimately because it had has had the highest specific heat capacity, and through that also the highest thermal conductivity. And so since for over 100 years, you know, since the invention of, I guess, modern day cooling, water has been this cooling medium. And ultimately, what SolveCore does and what SolveCore accomplishes is it makes water act like almost two times water, mm-hmm. ultimately almost doubling the specific heat of water. And the implications of that are quite 
extensive. Mm -hmm. uh, the most immediate and potentially obvious of those implications is the ability to reduce the flow rate of water while acting in the same fashion, transferring the same amount of heat, the same amount of load. And so to give an example, we can reduce the flow rate of water by 46% while achieving the same total cooling, the same total heat transfer with solve core liquids. So solve core liquids are, are third-party validated to have a specific heat about 1.8 times mm -hmm. greater than water, so, so almost two times. And so that's just one example. And lowering the, the flow rate by 46% by means an increase in pumping or reduction in pumping energy consumption by about 82%, just based on general flow characteristics of water and other liquids. And so that's just a tremendous energy efficiency gain. But then it goes well beyond that too. I mean, you look at the broader picture of it, it goes into the fact that you can improve the performance of cooling processes, mm -hmm. so high performance computing and chemical processes, increasing the throughput and output of, of chemicals. Its, its implications are much broader than that. And then even kind of longer term, uh, short term is is we're we're looking at simply installing this in typical cooling mm -hmm. systems already in chilled water systems. We don't have to change the equipment or how these systems operate. Yet we improve the efficiency mm -hmm. or reduce the sizing or or one of the, or one of the two. Uh, but in terms of longer term, we're also SolveCore also has the potential to to change the way that we do refrigeration itself hmm. as well. Hmm. And so there's a huge potential implication, not only in energy efficiency and reducing equipment sizing, but also in the ability to reduce the use of greenhouse gas refrigerants. And so one of the things I heard was you've increased the specific energy of the water. Does that necessarily mean you've increased the conductivity? And, and, and I know there's, like a, there's a couple of uh, questions there, so I'll let you. Yeah, yeah, no, away. very yeah. good question. I like, <laughs> I like the technical questions. Uh, so in the case of SolveCore, yes, and there's mm -hmm. a few reasons why. So the core principle of SolveCore, one, we're enhancing the specific heat so mm -hmm. much. It's not just like a minor, it's, you know, 80-something percent increase in mm -hmm. specific heat. The second part of it is the viscosity stays mm -hmm. quite low. And mm -hmm. so that still enables you to have the, those properties of water, especially low viscosity. And, and, and viscosity, the, let's explain, that's the gooiness of water. It's gooiness <laughs> of water, exactly, or the lack thereof, yes. right? It's not, you know, water isn't very gooey relative to some yeah. other things. Yeah. Um, and then the third aspect of, of it as well is that there's this convective heat transfer property. Mm -hmm. So when sol the way SolveCore's underlying mechanism works and the ultimate discovery of SolveCore, where it came from, and I, I can tell you a little bit about that if you're interested, but it's this uh, liquid that turns into two liquid phases mm. upon, mm. upon heating or cooling. And so ultimately what happens is it, it pulls, you know, convective, ultimately it moves uh, this this liquid layer, this new liquid that forms, new li liquid phase, kind of moves off the surface, uh, forms and moves off the surface of whatever, let's say, heat exchanger you're dealing with. And so that ultimately increases the effective thermal conductivity of the liquid, as well as the intrinsic property of the liquid itself having a higher specific heat. Got it. I, I, this brings me back 10, 15 years to mechanical engineering class when we talk about boundary layers and boundary layer formation and you have to draw a little resistor network to like calculate out uh, the heat transfer. And um, th so there, there, there's both more storage heat, but you're really fundamentally changing the mechanism that allows the heat to transfer. And that allows you to, to kind of have these efficiencies and improvements throughout the entire system. And um, and I think that, that that's like real technology there. Like you develop, you know, this is taking... Um, a fundamental physical uh, change that you're seeing in the world. You've found a way to control it with the chemistry, and um, that that gives us real world benefit. And, and you're right in a world where we got to control the heat more and better. Um, and and I think that it, it it touches things that are legacy. Like I, the first thing I think of when I think of heat control is my car, my car engine. How do I keep that cool? But it, that even touches like newer of vehicles, right? EVs. Like a big question is thermal yes. management. How do you deal with this? How do you how do you um, do it while keeping things small and efficient? And the par the parasitic losses on the thermal management system is a large driver of range nowadays. Absolutely right. And so this this really touches everything from legacy to to even new technology. Um, and and I appreciate how how broad it's going to be. I appreciate it um, as a Houstonian. And so I'm going to say <laughs> first of all, welcome. Like we're happy to have you here, and all of your. Um, patents and the additional patents that I'm sure will come. Also, because you may not know this, um, Houston, our motto at one point in time was actually Houston, it's hot. <laughs> um, because 
It is hot. And <laughs> it, is. it is no longer our motto because it is hot and it's getting hotter. And so this is absolutely something that we should be thinking about, but we take it for granted so much. Um, how heat impacts our daily lives and all of the technology that we use. And then from a, like a global climate perspective, when we talk about technology, water is very important, but mm -hmm. it's, it's often siloed. And so there's water and then there's energy and there's mm -hmm. climate tech. And mm -hmm. like water doesn't often get thought about, even though it is, I mean, most of the planet is water. Most of our bodies are water. That There's a whole effort about how, why do we look at technology from a certain perspective. So I love this idea. Um, I Tell me about, because I haven't been in a chemistry class <laughs> in a very long time, um, what happens to the liquids once you use them, right? Oh, great question. Yeah, and the good news is they stay in the system. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a one-time, it's, it's in the system. And these are, uh, just to, to think about how these cooling systems operate, there's a closed loop that ultimately that soft core goes into. And the closed loop is how these most of these cooling systems operate today, where ultimately water is heated up and then cooled down continuously in a closed loop. Mm -hmm. So there's no nothing really being added or removed, which is great. So in the end, you add soft core, it enhances, ultimately you, you make the liquid soft core, it enhances the effective heat capacity to almost two times, and then you leave it in the system. It sits in that loop. So you're not, it's not, it's not uh, being, you know, decomposed. There's not or, a byproduct. Or, there's no there's byproduct. Not a, okay. Yeah, it's, okay. It's, just, it's just enhancing an intrinsic property, significantly enhancing an intrinsic mm -hmm. property of the liquid. Uh, and so ultimately, it, it's, I mean, it's kind of the, the, the best situation in terms of, if you think of it from an energy efficiency benefit, you're not changing the way the system works. Mm -hmm. You're simply improving a very important part of how that system works. Something that people didn't realize you could improve, we are able to not only improve, but kind of revolutionize the whole way cooling is done because of the sizing and the and the efficiency gains you can get from soft core. Yeah. So and, and so I think the way we would describe it is like it's it's non-consumable, it's stable. You could put this in there and 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 it'll last for years. Exactly. Um, and, and and that's how fundamental it is. Mm -hmm. so you were gonna say something. I was gonna say, how did how did you come up with this idea? Like you said, people don't think you can improve water. I wouldn't have come up with that, um, but you did. So how did you start this business? Yeah, really great question too. Uh, the In terms of, I think part of how I discovered it and why I discovered it was because of a completely different angle that led to the discovery of it. So I was working on a CO2 capture system. I was developing a CO2 capture system. I had made a discovery separate invention uh, related to adding certain chemicals, certain solvents to a CO2 rich, a CO2 capture solution with CO2 dissolved in it. And ultimately doing that to reduce, what I discovered was I could reduce the temperature which the CO2 could come out. Hmm. And of course, when you add something in a cycle, you gotta remove something. And so I had to add, remove that solvent from the solution after we got the CO2 out. Uh, and so initially there was distillation and then I was developing chemicals which don't require distillation, ultimately trying to get it out of a solution as a liquid at a liquid phase. And through the process of developing these chemicals, some of the chemicals I was developing would actually significantly cool the solution when I necessarily wouldn't have expected it. Mm -hmm. um, and it and actually was a benefit to CO2 capture, which mm -hmm. was which was good, but I began to realize that this was had much broader implications given this was always at a liquid phase much broader implications than just CO2 capture. Clearly CO2 capture this benefited, but in just general heat transfer, in mm -hmm. general cooling, in general heating, which is really everything we touch, everything we do, this could have much broader implications. And so that's what led to the founding of SolveCore, the development of the liquids for the temperature ranges of typical cooling applications. And, uh, and so just through that completely different angle, I was able to discover this. So I want to double click here because I think sometimes um, you're, you're clearly running an experiment, you're collecting data, and, and you saw this, this blip in the data, and, th and there was a decision you made where you looked at this and you didn't just go, oh, that's interesting. I'm going to go focus on the, the PhD work. You actually looked at this and said, that's interesting. Let's make it better or let's see how this solves problems. Was this, was this something that happened in a moment or was this something that happened over time? Like, Tell us about that decision you made to develop this technology. Yeah, this this kind of lends to how 
I do experimentation mm. and kind of how I may lead to many of my inventions as well is um, I actually get very excited when experiments don't work out the way mm -hmm. I thought they would. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of people in, like, let's say, like a PhD or academic environment, they have a hypothesis and they're almost like have bias toward trying mm -hmm. to accomplish that. I kind of take the opposite approach in a lot of my inventing, a lot of my my work. Um, if my hypothesis comes true in many cases, it assumes that all the prior knowledge I had was true. It's not necessarily exciting. Um, it actually, in many cases, if you if the prior knowledge you had was based purely on literature, you're not necessarily really discovering anything new. Um, and that's, I mean, you are probably, but it's not, you know, your hypothesis is based off of information that other people may have had. What's interesting is if it doesn't work out the way your hypothesis did. And in this case, it kind of did in the sense that it did accomplish the goal of getting the CO2 to come out, mm -hmm. but it kind of didn't in the sense that it was changing the temperature of a solution in a way that was a lot more than I guess would be expected. So it was kind of, I guess, a hybrid of achieving the, hy the mm -hmm. hypothesis and not. Um, but it's, I think, at least in my case, I really try paying attention to the things that maybe people would think are extraneous or unimportant to their hypothesis, because that's often where like the greatest discoveries are found. Um, and, and so that process of, of just, I guess, one of the ways I sometimes mm -hmm. think about things is I, I'm always trying to separate what I believe from what I know on mm -hmm. a continuous basis. Like that's that's I think essential to like good inventing or good decision making is just being able to be very honest with yourself and very critical of yourself, for, but not critical in a way that's just you know, negative, but critical in the sense of how do I actually know that's true? Um, what am I basing that off mm -hmm. of? Is that a is that something I have confidence in, or why should I have confidence in it? And then kind of building on that. So, um, and that's generally how a lot of my thinking works. And so th that was part of ultimately what led me to discover. I mean, a lot discover a lot of other things too. I mean, even the CO2 capture discovery mm -hmm. was simple, similar to that in terms of being able to, to, even if it was, was or wasn't the hypothesis, being able to really break down what I'm seeing and what that could mean and what the implications of that could be. Yeah. And so I'm going to bring this back to entrepreneurship uh, because I think this is a very important skill to have. It's very difficult to constantly challenge what you do and don't know because it takes a lot of energy <laughs> it takes it a lot of brain space to really ask yourself these questions but when when you're the way i'm going to bring this back to although it saves a lot of time and energy in the long does. term right yeah. doing the right things are important <laughs> yes um but but i think when you're when you're bringing a technology to market a lot of times it, it is a science experiment where you have to go out and say okay i think i'm going to go solve a problem i have assumptions about what people need i have assumptions about what they will pay for i have to go out and test that um, and and discover um, what they're actually willing to write a check with a check for. Have you found uh, in your own commercialization uh, uh, approaches? How has that experience served you in terms of getting getting out to market? Extremely important. I yeah. treasure every yeah. customer relationship. <laughs> it is uh, it's actually so my process or the process um, that I've done is is really once I developed Solvecore and and got mm -hmm. third party validation for those properties that. You know, this has been this works and this exists. Uh, it's real because clearly a lot of people would question if it's real mm -hmm. just simply because of how seemingly crazy or incredible it is in terms of its properties. After that point, the number one goal was we know I, I knew that this was going to be important for the industry because clearly the industry is built around water as the heat transfer medium. However, where is this most valuable? Who needs this the most? And what does it mean when it's implemented? And and those are questions that. I, I really asked myself, and that required not just interaction with customers in the industry, but really finding the leading experts and I guess we'll call them geniuses that mm -hmm. knew things that I didn't know at that time, but also had an understanding of the implications of, of, of something like this, like what Softcore would do. And so I, I really treasure and I, I really enjoy, I've learned so much from the people who are just industry experts and maybe some of the most um, like some of the things that we take for granted are also some things that that are I should say we but you know people take for granted in general but also things that are so so important to the world and I, I mean it's something as simple as a heat exchanger to something as you know complex as a data center or some of these billion dollar infrastructure that that is just so essential to the way the world operates and and how those cooling systems operate and where softcore would go and and ultimately what what the customer would ultimately be looking for and how they would want to implement it which companies actually uh, like sometimes you think the first partners that you mm. should be working with are are the part like who do you really who is the customer right and mm. i think that's a question that 
some people will will mess up for so long in their in their in their entrepreneur years, and that's it's a really question you want to find out as early as possible. Mm -hmm. And so in our case, you know, I initially thought the customer may have been more uh, of the, the ultimate end users, and and for some cases it really is, and they are still the customer. What you discover is that that really who who has the authority and capabilities to really implement mm -hmm. and utilize the full value of Solvecore, and that seemingly is actually a slightly different group. And so it's interesting kind of seeing the full ecosystem and understanding that. And you wouldn't just be able to go on Google and find that out. In fact, you wouldn't. Mm. You'd have to, you really have to work with the customers, uh, ask the right questions, understand um, their needs, understand where, where you fit in there. It's a kind of a consultative process, but also most importantly, learning from that. Because I mean, ultimately my understanding of this industry was um, more from maybe a thermodynamic perspective before and really understanding the practical perspective of the industry, who does what and why they do what, you know, is, is really important. And um, it was critical ultimately to understanding the technology. And, and part of this, I, I do want to qualify some of this. I did know when I developed Solvecore or made that discovery initially with the within the C2 capture system that the temperature range that I had, I was using it or I developed it in the C2 capture system was too high for most of the cooling applications. And so part of what I did was actually develop liquids and this took time then ultimately had the same properties but were operating at the lower temperature required for cooling so mm -hmm. there was some information i knew about you know where the temperatures would operate but in terms of just the practical implementation of it the value proposition you know these type of things they were assumed as you pointed out but they weren't validated with the actual customers and, and amazing how much you learn in that process and one thing I did learn with Solvecore was just how much bigger the implications were than what I initially thought. Mm. I mean, I was really mm. looking narrowly. I was looking at electric vehicles. I was looking at liquid on ship cooling. <laughs> I was looking at these kind of narrower markets and I didn't fully appreciate how pretty much everything that's at an industrial scale requires cooling and specifically with water. And, and one of the things uh, Laura talks about a lot is, is you know, we, we have a lot of technology being developed here in Texas and a lot of research that's siloed um, in uh, even uh, industry. How do we bring that out? I don't, I don't know if you want to delve into it. <laughs> uh, well, I have so many questions about this. Um, my first question, uh, <laughs> if you have 150 patents, filings, like, is this your favorite? Is Solvecore your favorite? Are you allowed I, to I don't, have a I don't even have favorites. <laughs> I, I, I think about things in terms of impact and like how quickly I can make that impact happen. Mm -hmm. Solvecore has immediate impact. I mean, it's 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 happening. It's going to happen. And, and so... I mean, I'm, for the for the viewers, I mean, just look out for Solvecore inside in a building or for for other things. I mean, it's it is going to happen and it's happening. So, um, in so, terms of like that, that's what makes it exciting to me is how I mean, you look at clean energy technologies, and I, as you mentioned, I have multiple inventions at different TRL levels at different very different companies working on them. But in terms of Solvecore, what makes it very one of the things that makes it unique among let's say clean energy technologies is how little capital costs and infrastructure is required to do it mm. and how seamlessly it integrates within that infrastructure and the kind of the return on investment profile, both in terms of energy, but also CO2 emissions abatement. And so those are really unique in Solvecore. It makes it really a no brainer for people to implement and for these companies to implement. And so it's it's one of these technologies, it's a, a very unique thing and that's what gets it so makes it so exciting and makes me you know, motivated to just say, look, like, let's get this everywhere we can as quickly as possible because of how quickly this really can have an emissions benefit and a, an energy efficiency benefit. So um, I wouldn't say it's it's a favorite or not. I just, I look at, I look at each invention that I develop and I have a very strong screening process for where I spend my time. I mean, there's only <laughs> so much time. So I, I really look at, and that criteria includes some of the things I described, you know, with Solvecore. It's really saying like, for every unit of effort I put in, how much impact can I achieve with this? And so Solvecore, that math looks really good. And so that's part of part of what motivates me to work on that. So I love that you are starting and focusing with impact, right? Mm -hmm. Like that is very important to me as well, because there is a um, challenge and a delicate balance between making money and having impact. And, and in climate tech, like those things are starting to come together, which which is why it's an exciting time to be doing what you're doing. But I also like that you're leading with that. Have you done um, the like carbon impact analysis? Do you have anything yes. like that? And do your investors, customers, do you feel like that resonates with them? Absolutely. It's a very unique situation. There's very little carbon actually 
required to make Salcor, and we found that out. The return on carbon investment in a typical hmm. chiller process happens within four months, hmm. and so it's it's I mean it's a very quick process, and and I, I think that's the most important metric. But then, often when you have a high a fast return on carbon invested, you also get a fast return on actual investment, uh, especially when it's something that's energy efficiency related, and that's what we're finding with Salcor because ultimately the carbon that's we're saving is due to the electricity consumed in mm. these processes, and we're saving that electricity. And so it, it transcends to electricity. And so it depends on the price of the electricity, but you're looking at still less than a year return on investment on the electricity. And so that's a very unusual set of, of uh, I guess, economic and kind of CO2 emissions abatement characteristics for a technology, which is why Softcore really can just be dispatched or deployed quite quickly. Um, it's not just, I mean, as you mentioned, it's separating money from, you know, making money versus, uh, uh, you know, helping the environment. Those two things go very hand in hand, especially if a technology doesn't have a green premium. So like, it, and that's super important. I mean, we all think like sometimes people think like in a, a, a Western centric or like an OECD centric like thought process, you know, like Europe and the US, but in terms of the actual amount of emissions that let's say the OECD has, it's quite small compared to what ultimately the emerging market economies have for emissions, especially going forward. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and this is even more pronounced as, as countries like India and Indonesia. And, and uh, um, I mean, you can just think of, let's just call it Southeast Asia and, and more broadly where the, most of the human population lives as they become more wealthy. Um, if you look at the percentage of air conditioning use mm. in these very warm mm. countries, warmer than Houston, you know, mm -hmm. more humid than Houston, uh, it's very small. And they're going to start buying air conditioners. They already are. They're going to start buying cooling. And so not only is it, are they, are, are most, as of now, most of the emerging market economies responsible for current emissions, most of the world's current emissions, but they'll be even more so going forward. And so it makes it so important to improve the efficiency of cooling in a zero green premium way, because ultimately most of these emerging market economies, most people, as they get more wealthy, they're not they're not so wealthy that they can pay a green premium or that they can just, you know, they can justify paying for it. But but ultimately, if there is no green premium or it's more efficient than the alternative, it will be implemented. And when you talk about the energy transition in Houston, we tend to focus on energy and not energy efficiency. Yes. So this is a uh, such a missed opportunity. Mm -hmm. I think if you think about Winter Storm Uri, but if you also think about all of the times um, on a random Tuesday, anywhere from like April to October, where all of a sudden the market goes crazy and they say, everybody turn off all of your appliances because um, there's increased demand and reduced supply, that just efficiency and the things that we do all day long can have a huge impact. Absolutely. Right? And actually one thing that's quite exciting about Solvecore too is it's ultimately, think about it in terms of thermal storage. So mm. people often think about mm. battery storage, right? Electricity storage from batteries. Um, what people forget, especially when you live in a place like Houston where much of the electricity use is in fact cooling, especially during those times of year that you just described, you ultimately have, why would you want to convert into electricity into chemicals and back into electricity only to then have to use the electricity for cooling? What if you could just stay as cooling. And so thermal storage is really possibly the least expensive and most efficient way mm -hmm. of storing energy. Uh, and, and so it's, it's a, what Solcore ultimately does for thermal storage is it makes a cooling system have already inherently more thermal capacity in it. So if like ultimately, you know, two times more thermal capacity in a building. So that, that helps. But also for chilled water thermal storage, which is how like university campuses and kind of large hospitals and those kind of you know, let's call them campus-like infrastructure, does thermal storage, we're able to double, almost double mm. the thermal capacity of those thermal storage tanks. And so that's another benefit. You know, we think about when electricity prices are really high or when we know ahead of time that it's going to be really hot at this point in the day, being able to store the cold from night or store the, store the cooling when electricity is a little bit more plentiful so that you can use that cooling, that stored cooling, when the electricity is expensive or scarce, that's going to really help also with the electricity grid and, and being able to manage that in places like Houston. So we're going to talk more about Houston, but my last question, <laughs> and I hope this isn't stupid, but what is it like as an entrepreneur and inventor 
to be working on an experiment and find something that you didn't expect, right? I work in policy a lot, and so it's trying to advocate and teach people about something we already know is real, but I'm trying to convince you. But I I don't have any doubt because it's um, fairly well accepted and adopted, right? But you're finding something that is completely new, defies the laws of science or the laws of what we we had thought. What does that feel like? I actually get really critical very quickly. <laughs> I don't believe, I mean, I, I, the number of times in a, even a day that sometimes I think I've discovered something, I just get super critical super quickly. I say, like, am I believing, what, what is what I'm seeing, and I go through, I have like a, a whole set of questions. I'm always just kind of breaking it down. Is, and, and I should say this, I get a jump in energy. Like, I've, I want to find these answers out immediately as quickly as possible. I don't, like, slow down. I just kind of throw everything else aside and, like, I need to find, like, whether or not this is, like, legitimately what I think it is. And this is this actually, you know, worth my time. And so I'll spend maybe an hour or I mean, I, I'll spend, I don't keep track of how much time it is. I'm just going to, until I get those answers. And and many times I, I go through this process and I, I start off like really being very discerning and trying to really figure out the answers to those questions of, am I seeing, am, am I, is it just believing or am I seeing what I think I'm seeing? Mm -hmm. You know, is it really what I think it is? Um, and, and I can go through all those kind of questions that you ask, but but really what it is is that, you know, I, I ultimately, most of the time I do that, I ultimately figure out something. And and, and I, that goes much further out than, and it rarely, or I should say not actually rarely, across the full mm -hmm. spectrum, because this mm -hmm. happens enough in my life. But in terms of, um, like, of the percentage of times that I have one of these moments that actually ends up being something that I think is worth pursuing, is it's pretty rare. You know, it's I usually have this enough where I'm always kind of immune to it. Like, it doesn't mm -hmm. really... <laughs> it, it doesn't create that kind of like um, the kind of excitement is more just that kind of energy and motivation to go do this process of of really making sure that it's like almost my own due diligence to make sure this is worth worth pursuing. And and the first questions are about viability. Like, is this really what I think it mm -hmm. is? Is this viable? And, and it goes from everything from like, can you actually make this to like, does this actually do what I think it's doing? And then once I figure that out, the question is, have people done this before? Because I don't want to spend time on things that people have done before. Yeah. You know, that's just not exciting to me. Um, and so I and and in that process, I almost pretend I'm a patent examiner. I, I I pretend I want to find you know the thing that will put a nail in the coffin. You know, I because I, ultimately, if I don't act that way, someone else will after I've wasted three months of time on it. You know, mm -hmm. and so it's really important to like be as critical as possible. Like imagine you are like the due diligence person that's like trying to tear it apart. Like you want to be that as quickly as possible when you when you think you've made a discovery because it's going to save you so much time in long term. And also, I, I can't describe how many times it actually has led me to a better invention or better discovery because I'm like, wait, I thought it was this, but then really it was something like, like what if I just did that to it? That would solve that problem, mm -hmm. you know. And and ultimately, by the time I actually convey the invention to somebody in the field, it's usually pretty incredible how they're like, you really thought through all this. Like, wow, like you actually understand what I'm doing. And then also sometimes in the process of like being that due diligence person, being as discerning as pro like really kind of drilling down into into all of this, uh, into the to the viability and techno and economic viability and the differentiation, you know, really drilling into that. I become an expert in an area that I wasn't before, mm -hmm. you know, and that's also something that a lot of what I know and, and learned wasn't necessarily from school it was really through this process because. Uh, you retain so much when you think when you when you act like this because it's so important to you. You know when you have that energy, it just becomes so important to like really understand that because it's going to build and build and build on on you know. Ultimately, the other thing too is because I've had this happen enough times, um, the things I've learned from those past experiences become really helpful in the next invention that I develop, or often become building blocks to that next invention. So you make a discovery, then yeah. you spend time trying to do everything you can to shoot that discovery down. Yes. And uh, over 150 times, it's worked out, yes. which is exciting. And you can just tell how excited you are yes. like from this question, which is exciting for all of us in Houston. So I want to get to how did you end up here? You're not from here originally. Tell us your experience, the good, the bad, what you love. I want to see the other, the, the other things that... The ones that might also be your next favorite after softcore here. So. Oh yeah, they, no, I, I actually Houston. I feel like I've had a connection with Houston for some time. It's not a I, just to, for example. I, and I, I grew up in the Northeast, so I, I'm not from Texas or Houston. But uh, just some time ago, I uh, well 
since 20, 2014, uh, my patent attorney has been based in Houston and I work really closely with him. And so that, that was instrumental and in kind of my recognition that Houston's the place to be for what I do. Um, but also in terms of, uh, in 20, 2019, I received the uh, Houston Intellectual Property Association's Inventor of the Year Award. So mm -hmm. I, came, I was down here for that. Um, but then more recently, uh, the most of the people I work with are based in Houston or work for companies based in Houston or have large presence in Houston or the technical competencies mm -hmm. are in Houston. And so that that was another huge driver for why I moved to Houston. And then more generally, I came to a realization that Houston's really the only city in the United States that has the technical competencies, the infrastructure, and the companies that are required, or I should, I should say required, to do all my inventions at scale. Mm -hmm. And it really doesn't exist anywhere else. And so if you, if you want to do things at scale, if you want to have the infrastructure and you want to have the technical competencies to do it, it it's hard to find a better place than Houston. And we've got the Astros. And you got the Astros, <laughs> yeah. I know. Last oh. night, my gosh. <laughs> that was incredible. <laughs> um, so talk more about, I mean, we've got all of the... The ecosystem, right? Yes. Is it what you expected? So you've been here before, but like you're here for other entrepreneurs, for folks who are starting out, for folks who are getting into this space. Um, talking about energy transition and climate is hard. What is what's working well? I think the most important thing and what I value most here are the customers and strategic mm. partnerships and like just really having access to those are, are there's relationships. It's the companies, it's, you know, there's so much precedence here. I mean, so much precedent, like it, it has, and it's not just in like name only. I mean, it really is like, it exists here. Like the, it's the intellectual mecca, intellectual epicenter of all the major engineering mm. and, and construction and chemicals and, and it just, it just is here. And, and so it, and you realize that, I mean, I, I realize that naturally through the process of just, I mean, going back to like the way I, I, I find customers, like how I work with customers. I mean, I just, in terms of who actually knows like what to do or how to do, or, or even just the person responsible for like a particular component of a system, like you generally find them in Houston yeah. or like their bosses in Houston or <laughs> like, so like it just comes down to here. And so um, it, it's really a, a great place to just get things done because mm -hmm. it can get done here. It's not, it's not just like, um, and, and so that, that's, that's really important. And then, I mean, I guess brought more broadly in just terms of the nature, depending on, I mean, if you're doing clean tech, that's what I just described as super important, but like just more broadly, it's a very business friendly environment. So on top of all the good things about, you know, something that's just intrinsic to Houston, mm -hmm. um, but generally it's a very business friendly environment. It's a very open environment. It's a very diverse environment. And so if you have like crazy ideas or you, you, you operate differently than just the status quo, it's actually a really good place to be as well. And I don't know if people necessarily know that or don't know that, but um, it's not conforming in nature is what I think is really also a nice thing about Houston. I mean, you can really be who you want to be, um, even politically too. I mean, I, I, I'm pretty moderate politically, mm -hmm. but it, it's just interesting how you can see all sorts of, I mean, you see everything here in Houston in terms of, of that. And so it's a very accepting place and, and it's not, you can be different, not just in name only, but also like, it's almost like, I feel like in the innovation, it's almost expected, like there's something different. You have to be different, you yeah. know? But yeah. uh, I don't see you have to be different. Again, it's accepting of everything, but if you are different, it's not a bad thing here. You literally said all of the good things that I can possibly <laughs> think of. So I don't know what else to ask you about Houston. Um, someone told me the other day, and I love this, that there are no red or blue electrons and mm -hmm. there are no red or blue molecules, <laughs> yes. right? And that in the energy space, like say what you want about Texas politics, that it truly is a pretty like neutral people come together to talk about yes. making things work and they making don't really care yes. um, where you're from, like your backstory, you're from all over the world and that's just like accepted and normal. And I, I love that about Houston and it is so special. And it's also something you kind of only see and get if you're here. Yeah. 
Uh, you, we, we don't have billboards in other parts of the world that's like, oh, Houston. You know, maybe we should. I don't know about that. Remember, Houston, it's hot. Yeah, that's we, the billboard. Our marketing <laughs> is um, still in the works, yeah. right? Well, I mean, I think some something that's kind of interesting, you know, it's Houston is hot, but man, the wintertime isn't that bad. I mean, there yeah. is, I mean, there is the times of Houston, year. Houston, it's not cold. Yeah, it's not, <laughs> it's, it's kind of nice. You know, you always have like, you know, in terms of like every week you have all four seasons during the wintertime mm -hmm. here. Which is kind of neat. So you always like if it's cold one day and you don't want it to be cold, they're like, okay, in a few days it'll be warm. You know, you don't yeah, really yeah. have to like. It's a nice feeling coming from the Northeast, where it's and that, that's not why I moved down here, of course. Um, I mean, if I was really just looking for warm weather, there's plenty of other places you could go. But but in terms of just weather, I think it gets a bad reputation, but it's not really as bad as people like make it out to be. By the way, air conditioning works very well in Houston. <laughs> um, I, my apartment back in Princeton, uh, they never fixed the air conditioner. So I had a number of nights that were way too hot in the summertime and had trouble sleeping. Never had that issue in Houston. So even if it's very hot outside, you can be quite cold inside. It's almost recommended to bring a sweatshirt oh, with yeah. you oh. in the summertime. <laughs> that is the suggested attire. That, yes. that, I, I, that reminds me when I was doing Cleantech Open back in like 2012 in Boston, there was one startup going around renting out um, window unit air conditioners for the three weeks a year you need it in Boston. Yes. And you would do an annual subscription so you could have it show up and they would run distribution in like June and July just so you could have it for that one or two weeks where you would it's, die. It's, it's funny you mentioned that they, they because because I think that, that three weeks is getting longer. Yeah, it's there. true. Yeah, because uh, you know, my, my grandma's, my, my dad grew up in the Massachusetts mm -hmm. area. And they used to not need any air conditioning, but like 10 years ago, they had to install air conditioning. Like my, my grandma had to install the air conditioning. So um, clearly it's, it is getting warmer up there. So, well, this is a huge equity issue also. Yes. Your mm -hmm. story um, that a lot, uh, there are people in every community, but definitely in the South where it is hot in the summer where your bills get too high and they choose between like mm. food and just like daily cost of living and air conditioning. Right. And so when we, you know, the, the many things we have to consider when we think about energy, technology, and climate and how all of these come together, if you can just make the air conditioning, if you can make the technology that you have in your home already better, less expensive, like that's a that's a pretty big win. So it is. That is exciting. Thank you. Communities everywhere. Um, yeah. And and uh, when you think about uh, where we're going as a, as a country, like we talk about climate uh, affecting us nationally, um, what do you think the, the goals of our, our industry or your industry should be for, for 2050 other than having solve core and every, every cooling system? <laughs> oh, yeah. Other than that, yeah, yeah, yeah very important. Um, so in terms of the cooling industry, uh, there are opportunity. I mean, I always like going down to physics and saying, mm -hmm. okay, like what is the minimum amount of energy you need to do this? like to do whatever that is. And in the case, cooling or heating, um, we're still pretty far off from, mm. from that across the whole industry. And so the goal by 2050, I, I like doing shorter term goals, but when you go really far out, you know, people underappreciate what you can do past 10 years. So I would say, what is the physics level minimum mm. energy required to do you know, cooling? And I would make the, the target as close as possible to that and say, mm. that's what we should be achieving across, kind of an average across, uh, across industry, across different domains, especially where where they can afford to do that. You know, clearly tech companies that have data centers and mm. large industrial companies can, in theory right now, afford to be more efficient. So, and they're always trying to be, I'm not saying like that they obviously are motivated to do that too. Um, but that's, that's, I think the starting point. I mean, the best energy, the most, the cleanest energy is the energy you don't use. And so mm -hmm. you can, if, if that that should be the first goal, more important than the CO2 emissions goal, in my view. I mean, a lot of times mm -hmm. the CO2 emissions goal can be a game. I mean, mm -hmm. they use offsets, they do, and and the quality of those offsets are questionable. And it's a, it can be just big financial modeling exercise. It doesn't really have any impact on the world. When you start looking at the en actual energy use of a, of, a, of a building or the actual source of that energy, that's a lot more real, especially from a climate impact or just impact in general. We spend a lot of time trying to develop technology that gives us an excuse to use more and do more when we could instead use less, right? Yes. Although I, I do have the view that we want to be able to, we don't want to make people sacrifice. Mm -hmm. I, and so it would be great if you could live like you had or, or like the world could live like they had more or they actually had more. But ultimately, we're using less. I mean, and that, that's where efficiency it, comes in, exactly. right? Yes. Like the whole do more with less. 
Um, yeah, we, we don't want to be in making people have to choose from one or the other. Because they won't. Right. Yeah. If they don't have to. I mean, right. And I guess in Europe, they're they're kind of being forced right now to make that decision. <laughs> but I don't think that's a good thing. It's not actually helping climate change. It's causing them to start coal-fired power mm -hmm. plants. So, I mean, clearly that's not how we want people to to operate. We want, you know, that's why energy efficiency is so important. It's funny, you're, you're saying this now. This reminds me of a conversation I had with um, a venture capitalist from Boston, Matthew Norton. Um, he had this great presentation on... Um, this thing called Jevons paradox, and his his example I think back in the day was about lighting, and 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 he he brought out this example where you um, think of early lighting it used to be candles, and so literally people would have a certain amount that they would spend on lighting, but it didn't mean they had candles everywhere because it was just too expensive, it was too painful, and then you switch to incandescent light bulbs, and guess what? People started using lighting more. It was cheaper than a candle. It was like it wasn't a, as much of a consumable. It didn't have as many extraneous factors. Um, and as we made the transition to LEDs, guess what happened? People kept the lights on, yes. right? Because it was so cheap. You would go from a 100-watt light bulb down to a 7-watt light bulb. And, and now it became an afterthought. It's kind of like how we think about other utilities like electricity and water. Let's just leave it on. It's, it's so cheap. And, and that's, that is the, the double-edged sword of efficiency is it, it makes it easy to consume. That's not necessarily the best thing for limited resources. Well, well, the grid mm -hmm. thing about it is, and this is where, I mean, I think it's an unfortunate thing that a lot of people like associate mm -hmm. solving climate change with um, making things more expensive or causing mm -hmm. people to sacrifice more. Ultimately, if we're going to solve it, that's not how we're going to solve it. Is, is this, mm -hmm. At least that's my point of view, um, especially considering the fact that most of the emerging market economies are resp responsible for the future emissions, not the previous, but the future emissions. And so ultimately to get that kind of adoption, it, it can't be like that. And mm -hmm. so um, with that understanding, it's it's really important to say, well, yeah, okay, LEDs enabled a, a whole new paradigm in terms of how we view electricity use from lighting. Now, it used to be that you wanna let the natural light into your buildings. If you talk to skyscraper developers, mm -hmm. they're like, oh, you know, we want the natural light into the buildings. That was historically the way they viewed it. Now it's for aesthetic reasons. Mm -hmm. If they wanted to be energy efficient because LEDs are so efficient, you're better off building like a giant concrete building with no windows. Clearly, we don't it. want that. Yeah. But, <laughs> but like that, that's yeah, exactly because yeah. of just how efficient LED light bulbs are. And so from that perspective, it just it, it's such a great opportunity to really make the planet have operated a higher standard of living as a whole, like raise people's standard of living with while living in harmony with the planet. And that's that's really what I see as the opportunity in climate change, or, or I shouldn't say climate change, but just mm -hmm. this energy transition at large. I don't, first of all, the energy transition term, I, I'm not sure it's really a great term, but if we were to use that term, it's not a transition of like one type of fuel to another type of fuel. It's hopefully a transition from, uh, from from essentially what was kind of let's say less sustainable to what's more sustainable, mm -hmm. but more importantly, hopefully a transition where we can go and raise the standard of living of of the average person in the world without destroying our planet, mm -hmm. you know, while living in harmony with our planet. Mm -hmm. And and ultimately, I mean, if we want, like back to your point, if we can make electricity cheaper, if we can make it more abundant, if we can make it more affordable, if we can make the ultimate end uses of that electricity, the users of that electricity more efficient, then I mean, there's a whole new realm of possibilities that now become available to you. I mean, in terms of like a lot of the stuff involving um, decarbonization is involves uh, how much energy is consumed in that decarbonization. If you could source that from electricity, you would. But unfortunately, electricity is just too expensive yeah. relative to other forms of heat. I mean, other sources of heat. And so it's there's such an opportunity. If we can lower the cost of energy, you can increase the reliability of energy or increase energy efficiency. It, the, the world is your oyster in terms yeah. of possibilities. Yeah, I like it. Um, so thinking about the people who are listening right now, what can they do to help you? Is there anything? Do you have any asks? I think one, one of the things we talked about before um, for you was that there are a lot of applications, right? There are. It's about finding that that expert who um, knows the most about implementation can have impact. Is there is there an industry where you're you're thinking about um, where you haven't quite found that right expert yet? Not, not as much that I do think um, there's an opportunity though. I mean, look, this is Softcore is really a platform. It's mm -hmm. a it's a really new 
it opens up a whole new set of possibilities, mm -hmm. right? And so with that, there likely will be a lot of innovation built on top of that. So like things that are enabled that previously weren't possible. Mm. And I'm excited to see where that leads to. So there may be somebody who's listening who says, wow, I could do that. You know, if I could have double the heat capacity, I would want to do this. And maybe mm. that's something I have or haven't thought of. But in any case, it's exciting because it's meaning we're improving the world somehow. So if we can, yeah, that that's one takeaway. Uh, the other is, I mean, um, back to the point, I mean, if they have some ideas of how to get I mean, if there's a building that they think they should have solve core in, if there's a you know something that they mm. have access to or they they can see an opportunity for, I may or may not be aware of it. So I mean, that's also a way that can be helpful. How would they find you? I mean, my LinkedIn. Yeah, you can get definitely definitely message me on LinkedIn or link in with me. Um, so that's probably the best way of reaching out to me. Cool. Is there any um, last thoughts or wisdom you would want to leave our listeners with? Yeah, uh, definitely the most, I mean, it goes back to that, that point of, of sacrifice. I mean, mm -hmm. we, shouldn't, we shouldn't view climate change and solving climate change as a sacrifice because that's just not, it's just not in our natural, we, we always are improving as a society. We always want to be improving. Um, people get excited about improvement. I don't think people get excited about sacrifice. Um, but also, more importantly, that's just how our economy and our, our society functions. And that's how everything historically mm. happened. I mean, every major improvement in society that has happened pretty much has been due to some technology or some set of technologies. I shouldn't say, at least as it relates to energy and water and the things we need. I mean, of course, there's public policy and other things. But in terms of like the essentials, like what people actually need to live, it's usually a technology that kind of drives mm. that. And so, or I should say a set of technologies, right? And so um, when we look at the future, I'm very optimistic about the future, um, especially I see a very exciting opportunity for our planet to live, for humans to live in harmony with the planet and get all the things they need. And that's, that's the vision that we should all be working toward. Yeah. That's perfect. So um, we are excited that you are in Houston. You're an incredible resource. I, I am excited to see all of the patents and new patents that are coming. And there are lots of entrepreneurs who I bet could learn so much from you. So be prepared for an onslaught of people <laughs> reaching out saying, um, help me Obi-Wan Kenobi. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>